Hopefully you have statements 11 and 10 and 11 and 12. But 10, 10 was out last week, but we didn't get to it. We finished, um, oh, that's right. We had statement nine last week. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. We did statement nine last week. So we're on statement 10 this week. So we're going to try to get through 10 and 11 and 12. Um, if any one of these is going to bog us down, all right, let's be real. Any one of these could bog us down. If you like, we can just not talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, please, please don't stop. Um, our, our study, I, I think so far, has been good for us to remind us what... Um, if not to remind us what Scripture says, which hopefully that's what it's done. It's had so many um, connections to Scripture and, and, and biblical concepts in it. it. It helps us understand an orthodox conservative stance um, on this in the midst of a, a world that is um, always bringing up a new idea. And this is reminding us that not everything is up for uh, debate all the time. And so uh, we're looking today at the term gay Christian. And that is some of the issue that got the PCA even into this discussion back in 2018 because there was a conference hosted in Missouri um, called the Revoice Conference and it's I believe it's continued to be hosted uh, in years past and years since then. Uh, and, and it is for those who call themselves gay Christians. And, and so the, the question is is that term, you, you could put all types of descriptors on it. Is it precise? Is it accurate? Those are different things. Is it uh, good? Is it true? Uh, is, can, can a Christian use this term? Now, we're going to speak in terms of um, best case scenario, idealistic, like what is, how it ought to be. Now, you'll notice a second paragraph allows for a little, has a little more leeway saying, okay, just because maybe that's how things ought to be, there still needs to be some leeway and some grace in, in pastorally dealing with people who would call themselves a gay Christian. If, if we're going to conclude that the term gay Christian is not helpful, but the second paragraph is going to tell you, but don't go beat people up for it. Uh, so there's, there's a difference in, um, in the pastoral approach versus the pastoral approach flows from the theological stance, but it's, it's, uh, it is to guide people to the, the right conclusion, not to beat them to the right conclusion. Uh, so let's go ahead and read that first paragraph. We affirm that those in our churches would be wise to avoid the term gay Christian. Um, note that I, I think the committee did a good job on this. They didn't come out right and say, it is a sin to call yourself a gay Christian. They said, we, we think... For those in our churches, it would be wise to avoid the term gay Christian. Although the term gay may refer to more than being attracted to persons of the same sex, the term does not communicate less than that. So somebody might say, well, when I say that I'm a gay Christian, all I mean is that I have um, what you know other people would call same-sex attraction. And this document is acknowledging, yeah, it definitely means that, but often means more than that. And so let's uh, parse out what that more than can be. Uh, for many people in our culture to self-identify as gay suggests that one is engaged in homosexual practice. 
So would it be good for a Christian to insinuate that he or she is engaging in homosexual practice by calling himself or herself a gay Christian? No. At the very least, the term normally communicates the presence and approval of same-sex sexual attraction as morally neutral or morally praiseworthy. Even if gay for some Christians simply means same-sex attraction, it is still inappropriate to juxtapose the sinful desire or any other sinful desire as an identity marker alongside our identity as new creations in Christ. Therefore, you can deduce from that last line, uh, we do not believe that homosexuality is a morally neutral or morally praiseworthy um, identity. It would not be the same as somebody saying I am male or female or that I am from a certain nationality. There is not a moral weight to those things. There is a moral weight to this one. So uh, if somebody says I'm a gay Christian, they are assuming, they, they are proposing that I am okay with what I mean by this term. And so if somebody identifies, or, or of course the alternative example that people always present is, well, would you call yourself an alcoholic Christian? Some people do. Um, but it's, it is important not to advertise yourself as an alcoholic Christian because what you would be saying is that my temptation to alcohol is consistent with my Christianity. It's, it, well, now, we looked last week at how we do name our sins. And if a Christian struggles with alcohol, don't hide it. Deal with it. Like, uh, I'm not saying fix it, right? That's, that's not what I'm trying to say. But like, don't, don't try to hide it. We're not saying sweep these things under the rug. We're saying don't make them part and parcel of who you call yourself alongside being a Christian. And so if somebody is saying, I am an alcoholic Christian, the assumption is they're like, all right, I'm okay with being an alcoholic. Uh, I, I think that's a good thing. I think it's, it's either, it's minimally morally neutral. It may be morally praiseworthy. And I'm a Christian. Like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because we know that alcoholism is bad. Um, so when it comes to homosexuality, for somebody to say, I am a gay Christian, minimally communicates that um, I'm okay with the fact that I am attracted to people of the same sex. And to say that you're okay with that is to say that you are okay with a sinful desire. Minimally. Now, in the second paragraph, of course, there's going to be an explanation of how some people may use the term not for that reason, but to try to like identify with people outside the church. That's, we'll get there. Um, but I think for those within our churches who are seeking to grow in sanctification, it is not helpful to identify yourself with a sin that, or seem to uh, condone that sin. I think... Um, now... Don't take me, you know, to, to Presbytery with this one. But um, sometimes the order is important. Uh, to say I am a gay Christian is very different than to say I am a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. Um, uh, so I, I think those are two very different things. And, and we should um, make sure that if there's a Christian who's struggling with same-sex attraction, they may come in and call themselves a gay Christian. You, know, you sit down and say, all right, let's, like, what does that mean? Uh, these, are, these are not people that we just push away. These are, these are people who, just like you and me, 
have attraction to things that are wrong and need to be patiently guided uh, back to our Savior who cleanses us from our sin and who provides us the means of, of growth. And so um, for a Christian to come in and say, I'm a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction is a very different thing. And, and I would say that is a, a, that is not, that does not condone same-sex attraction. It does not condone the gay lifestyle nor any of the culture that comes with it. It is to say, I'm first and foremost a Christian. And right now, in part of this conversation, one of those things is that I struggle with same-sex attraction. And maybe tomorrow we'll be talking about something else about me, but first and foremost, I'm a Christian. So, so I think that in some senses, the order and the priority of the words is also very important uh, to think about as we're talking with people. Thoughts on that? Yes. I wonder if it's bigger than sinful desires, this issue. Of, and you may have touched it last week when we weren't here on identity. Um, I... <coughs> I was watching a reel, and this guy said, fitness is my identity. And I thought, that's really interesting. It's almost like it's gotten into everything of culture, and most of us wouldn't say fitness is, we would say fitness is fairly morally neutral, but saying fitness is my identity seems as flawed as saying mm -hmm. anything yeah. else is my yeah. identity. Yeah, that's very good. Right. Yeah. Seems like it's a bigger picture right now. Yeah. Who are we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's well said because fitness, you're right. We would call that morally neutral, but anything can replace God and, yeah. and is no longer morally neutral, yeah. right? right? Being a certain nationality can be uh, neutral, but we can make it something that's not neutral. We can make it something bad being a redhead, you know, <laughs> I guess that's typically negative, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Rachel. <laughs> No, I think I think I think that's a helpful point, and and we we did touch on that uh, last week, but yeah, that's that's a helpful reminder uh, that um, we need to encourage everybody, no matter what your struggle is, to remember that your identity is first and foremost in Jesus, uh, and not these other even good things. Even being a parent can't be your identity. Uh, even I mean, all these good things. Um, my identity as a pastor cannot be my first identity. It, it can't be my identity as, as a forgiven recipient of grace. That's my first identity. I am a Christian uh, more than anything else. Uh, two hands. We'll go here and then back to David. Um, <clears throat> just thinking about like identity and culture seems to be like everybody's trying to find themselves in what seems like a more public and more, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, just a more public way than maybe we would have thought about it 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, like, from your perspective mm -hmm. as a pastor who is, like, engaging with people, uh, have you seen an uptick in, like, people struggling, like, having existential crises because parts of their identity are being taken away from them? Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's uh, something on this uh, sexual identity or uh, I identify as a swimmer uh, from high school on and then I yeah. went to college and wasn't a swimmer and what am I now? 
I've seen it in a lot of teenagers. I mean, it can start with, I didn't make the tea. Yeah. And that was everything to me. That was everything. And that wrestling of what's really important and the priorities and the order. Yeah. As you said, the, the priority we give to different things in life. I think that's an ongoing issue with every Christian that we have to get our priorities straight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say it's the same heart issue that's always been the human heart issue mm-hmm. of wanting to mm-hmm. find value in something that we've accomplished and done, something we're good at. We mm-hmm. want people to be impressed by us in some way. And it's definitely taken its own unique form in this culture and in this day and where, yeah, we advertise our our identity, what we think is our identity. We put out a, an image online that we want, we think people are going to be impressed by. Ironically, it's always the same image as everybody else. It's, it's like <laughs> we really are just trying to fit in so that everybody else, you know, thinks that we're just as cool as they are. So there really is no uniqueness in that. But I think it's just indicative of that same heart issue that I, and, and I don't mean to seem, seem all sappy here, but we're, we want to be known and loved. And I think we're so afraid of people knowing who we really are that we try to put out all these false images of like, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to be the really good um, theologian or I'm going to be the really good athlete or I'm going to be the really good whatever it is. And, and so we put those things on a pedestal and it's really easy to do that now thanks to uh, uh, social media. Um, so I, I would just say it's taken its unique form in our, in our day. Uh, over here, David. And then... I was just going to say, I think that's perhaps one of the challenges of the church is to help people understand what this identity in Christ actually means. Because we understand some theological principles, but yeah. many of them are somewhat abstract. And when you were talking to Stephen, I was thinking, people are all the time identifying themselves by their job. Mm-hmm. I'm an engineer. Yep. I'm in the medical field. Hi. Yeah. When you ask them in their name, they don't say I'm John Doe, they say I'm Dr. John Doe. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't exist yeah. without that title. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think Tim Keller's book, The Freedom of Self Forgetfulness, mm-hmm. is really helpful. Mm-hmm. And so, so good. Tiny book, too. You, you yeah. can read that in 30 minutes. Yeah. It's so good. I read that this summer, and I do highly recommend it. And spent 30 years understanding it. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. And um, I, we did get into, last week I was really, uh, I loved the statement last week and was really encouraged. We read a lot of scripture with it last week because we were doing exactly what you have said before and just repeated now, trying to emphasize what does it mean to identify with Christ. Uh, so yeah, I would encourage you to, if you have time, go back and listen to that one. Uh, just a second, Eric. Yeah, yeah I, I think from an anecdotal point of view, at least the people that I've talked to that have had same-sex attraction, one of them was a self-proclaimed gay Christian. And so like we walked through that together, and one of the hardest things for him to understand was his sin in general. It wasn't just this sin struggle. It was just sin in general. And realized, like, hey, it's not that you're a lying Christian when you are that. A private Christian, you are that. You know, and whatever yeah. he struggles yeah. with, but that's not who you are. I don't go around saying I'm a prideful Christian. Yeah. So like, we we really just got to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because that's not my identity. It's yeah. in Christ, and so we, yeah. we really tackle that. And I go, man, that's not who you are anymore. Yeah. Good. That's really so. good. And and I think it's helpful for us as we look at this first paragraph to remember. Look at the the first few words. We affirm that those in our churches. Okay. 
if we're talking about somebody who's new to our church, who's just coming in and they call themselves a gay Christian, our first thing had better not be to try to fix their language. Um, there's far more to do uh, in terms of caring for them than to say, hey, stop calling yourself that. Or to say, you can't say that. Um, so, yeah, and as they grow, that the goal is to get them to this point where they don't view themselves as that first and foremost. They view themselves in Christ first and foremost. Um, yeah, and that's good. Yeah, like, yeah, it's not who you are. Yeah. I think like, the cool thing, too, is we have that connection where he yeah. was able to come to me and yeah. talk to yeah. me about this stuff, too. And yeah. I was able to, you know. Good. Yeah, you can tell them that truth. That, that's good. Yeah. What were you going to say? Um. This is taking a few steps back to just thinking about, like, why do we care so much about identity? And one of my professors a long time ago Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, just had this theory that because God in the garden gave, like, established relationships with humans and also between humans and then also gave them meaningful work, after the fall, relationships and work were both broken. And ever since then, we're just striving to, like, figure out how those things work in our lives. And so we, like, obsess over relationships, obsess over our image to other people, and obsess over our work. And um, it was a counseling class, so, like, his whole point was, we need to talk about these things with people because we all think about it. It's just kind of, like, hardwired into us. So, I don't know. Um, Just something to think about. It's not gospel, but... Um, I just, yeah, it's rang true in my experiences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's good. Let's look at the uh, nevertheless paragraph. Nevertheless, we recognize that some Christians may use the term gay in an effort to be more readily understood by non-Christians. The word gay is common in our culture, and we do not think it wise for churches to police every use of the term. Our burden is that we do not justify our sin struggles by affixing them to our identity as Christians. Christians, or excuse me, churches should be gentle, patient, and intentional with believers who call themselves gay Christians, encouraging them as part of the process of sanctification to leave behind identification language rooted in sinful desires, to live chaste lives, to refrain from entering into temptation, and to mortify their sinful desires. Seems like we have already hit on all of that except for the last line, and that's really good. I think our conversation has naturally gone there. Um, and I think the encouragement would be uh, for all of us, no matter what we identify ourselves as, well, um, frankly, some of us think of ourselves as, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a poor person, first and foremost, or I'm a rich person, or I'm a white person, or I'm a smart person, or I'm a, you know, those are the, the types of things that we generally think of ourselves as. And I think we all could be, um, we would all benefit from an encouragement as a part of the process of sanctification to leave behind identification language rooted in sinful desires and to live chaste lives, to refrain from entering into temptation and to mortify our sinful desires. It says churches should be gentle, patient, and intentional. Bless you. I don't know if the word church is there. I don't know how much time they spent thinking about that word. Are they talking about individual Christians, or are they talking about the church as an institution, or are they talking about both? I think that word there, uh, churches, should apply to both. Uh, I think we as Christians, what, I guess the reason I bring that up is because I don't want the people of Christ's presence to think, oh, well, the church is going to be kind to them, so I don't need to give it that much thought. 
And also, I don't think the church needs to say, oh, well, we're going to tell our people to be kind, so we don't really need to change anything in our, in our documents or in our language or how we speak of things. So I think it should go both ways. I think this should be the call of every Christian and the church, which is composed of Christians. Um, uh, I think we all should aim to be gentle and patient and intentional with believers who call themselves gay Christians, knowing that you replace that word gay with any one of your sins and you need the same the name, same patience and the same gentleness and the same care. So there is a BCO amendment right now. You see this at the bottom of the page. <clears throat> that is currently being voted upon by the PCA's presbyteries this winter. Um, and will continue through spring. If this amendment is adopted, it would add the following underlying portions to our church constitution. Now, I'll go ahead and note this was passed. Uh, with flying colors at General Assembly last year. So last summer, um, the, I can't remember, 2,000 voting elders that were there, um, with flying colors said, yes, we need this. So this is stage two of the ratification process where, um, or amendment process, uh, where all each individual presbytery, there are 88 presbyteries in the PCA, each presbytery is going to vote on whether or not they want this to be a part of our Book of Church order, and it will go back to uh, presbytery next summer if it gets two-thirds of the presbyteries voting in favor of it. Uh, and so far, there have been 41 votes on it, which means there are 47 votes remaining. So 40, 41 Presbyteries have voted on it. 47 Presbyteries will be voting on it this spring before General Assembly. Of the 41 Presbyteries that have voted for it, 40 have upheld it. One has turned it down. The one is Northern California Presbytery, and their vote was 11 to 14. Uh, so it was close there. So some context here. So uh, I love the fact that each press, like two thirds of the presbyteries, have to uphold this for it to go back to general assembly to be voted on and and um, finally concluded next summer. Uh, but just for stats, uh, just for your mind, even though this has nothing to do with whether it passes or not, across the PCA of the votes that have been cast, 81 elders have voted this down. 1,549 have voted it up. Um, if that gives you a little bit of a ratio on, on how the voting uh, elders in the congregation, in, in the, uh, the church, think. Uh, when the Ohio Presbytery voted on it, we voted back in October. Uh, and we voted in favor of this 24 to 0, um, just so you know where our presbytery stands on this. Yes? And to be clear, this is the revised version that takes a more broad uh, view of Christian sexuality as opposed to, I think the reason this has been taking so long is because originally it was pretty narrow. Yeah, yeah there was another uh, overture last year that specifically addressed homosexuality um, and it was voted down in the presbyteries because uh, it was redundant, be, not because it was redundant because it was it was too um, laser focused that it became a little bit un, unhelpful um, this one is far more inclusive um, yeah and, and I've told some of y'all I voted that one down last year 
and I voted for this one. Um, in terms of, uh, this is just a much, much more wholesome approach to, to how an elder should describe himself. So let's look at it. Currently, what, what you see there under 8.2 and 9.3, what's uh, not underlined is already there in our book of church order. What is underlined is what uh, is being sought uh, to add. So uh, he that fills this office, I think uh, 8.2 is speaking of uh, elder and 9.3 is speaking of deacon. So 8.2, he that fills this office of elder should possess a competency of human learning and be blameless in life. Uh, sound in the faith and apt to teach, he should exhibit a sobriety and holiness of life becoming the gospel. He should conform to, here's the new language, he should conform to the biblical requirement of chastity and sexual purity in his descriptions of himself and in his convictions, character, and conduct. He should rule his own house well and should have a good report of them that are outside the church. Yes? That seems pretty um, clearly biblical. What are those supposed to say? Uh, I don't know. No, I'm, I'm with you. This, this seems um, very good. <laughs> yeah. I would think this phrase they don't like is their description of themselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Because that could be understood in various ways. What do you mean by you describe yourself this way? Or shouldn't I be able to describe myself this way to the people that I'm trying to reach in order to reach them? And maybe those are the well, types of... Well, going back to the identity issue. That yeah. that is directed at that issue. That when you identify yourself in your description of yourself, when you identify in any behavior that is unbiblical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it's undermining your, your witness. Yeah. The Ohio Presbytery has a balance of uh, conservative voices and um, I don't even want to say liberal, but less conservative voices among the elders in, in, the, in our presbytery. And even the ones who are less conservative, I mean, I, you heard the vote counts, 24-0 in the Ohio Presbytery. We're not talking about people who have issue with biblical sexuality, I hope. Um, and if, if that is the case, then I think um, that will show itself in different forms of discipline and um, and hopefully discipleship and shepherding. And you see that same uh, language is added to paragraph or yeah, paragraph nine three for the for the deacons. So we think all officers of the church uh, should describe themselves in biblical terms. I think we need to power through and read statement eleven and statement twelve mm -hmm. and call this a wrap. <laughs> statement 11 on friendship now what I don't want to do is it, um, minimize or do a disservice to the importance of statements 11 and 12 um, I think th the first line in statement 11 expresses the concern uh, that many of us have about singleness and the church. We affirm that our contemporary ecclesiastical culture has an underdeveloped understanding of friendship and often does not honor singleness as it should. Okay. This is where this looks bad. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to keep reading. <laughs> not because I don't believe that wholeheartedly and think that we could do a whole series on this. I have some great resources that I think I would encourage y'all to read about this. Um, 
but given the scope of the sexuality report, um, let me go ahead and say, um, let's be actively seeking as members of this church, how to make sure that we do not dishonor singleness and biblical friendship with those around us. But I'm not saying keep me out of it. I'm saying help me as we go forward. Um, when you see ways that we can do this well, help me. Uh, I can't do all this. That's why this church will, should never be run by a single person. Um, and so I, I need this kind of input from those of you who are single, those of you who are doing a good job of honoring singleness in other people. Um, let's, let's not be a church that disregards singles or looks at them as second rate. Um, and this, of course, is, is speaking very specifically of those who struggle with same-sex attraction and choose um, the life of chastity. And, and therefore, their relationships with everybody in this world are going to be at the level of friendship. There will be no marriage uh, for those who have chosen this direction. Um, the church, here's what it says, line two. The church must work to see that all members, including believers who struggle with same-sex attraction, are valued members of the body of Christ and engaged in meaningful relationships through the blessings of the family of God. That's that covenant that we heard about this morning. People who struggle with same-sex attraction are a part of the covenant of God in this covenant family. And if ever we begin to treat them as second-rate citizens, we have done not just them a disservice, we have done ourselves a disservice. Um, likewise, we affirm the value of Christians who share common struggles gathering together for mutual accountability, exhortation, and encouragement. So if there's a group that needs to meet together to help each other fight this struggle, we want to encourage that. Uh, nevertheless, we do not support the formation of exclusive contractual marriage-like friendships. In other words, you can't have um, two people who like are exclusively like, well, we're just friends, but behind that know that there is so much more going on uh, in terms of unhealthy, um, um, how, do, how do I put it, uh, a closeness um, that would uh, border on marriage. Um, nor do we support same-sex romantic behavior or the assumption that certain sensibilities and interests are necessarily aspects of a gay identity. Uh, we do not consider same-sex attraction a gift in itself, nor do we think this sin struggle or any sin struggle should be celebrated in the church. So those who struggle with this, we're not trying to say, oh, this is good, we're glad for you, but instead, we love you, we're going to be with you through this, and here's, let's do this together whether it's a group, whether it's valuing them uh, uh, or sharing with them um, what else, what all is going in our lives and how God has worked in us and how God is working in us and how we also are still growing. Those types of um, conversations need to be happening no matter the specific sin of the person that we're talking to. And lastly, repentance and hope. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and power through here. I have nothing noted on this page because this is not going to be new, hopefully, for any of us. But it's a great way to conclude. And it's really helpful for us to, uh, to remember for every single believer, our lives are about repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. What's the rhythm of the Christian life? Repentance and faith. What do I do when I wake up on Sunday mornings? 
Well, when we come to church, we repent of our sins and then we stand and, ex- and, and profess our faith. What do we do on Monday mornings? We wake up and confess our sin. We repent of our sin and the Lord renews our faith and we look to Christ again. Every moment of, of the Christian life is repenting of our sin and growing in faith. It is that, that cutting away of sin and that renewal of the heart. That is the constant rhythm of our lives. We affirm that the entire life of the believer is one of repentance, where we have mistreated those who struggle with same-sex attraction or with any other sinful desires, we call ourselves to repentance, where we have nurtured or made peace with sinful thoughts, desires, words, or deeds, we call ourselves to repentance, where we have heaped upon others misplaced shame or have not dealt well with necessary God-given shame, we call ourselves to repentance. Nevertheless, as we call ourselves to the evangelical grace of repentance, we see many reasons for rejoicing. We give thanks for penitent believers who, though they continue to struggle with same-sex attraction, are living lives of chastity and obedience. These brothers and sisters can serve as courageous examples of faith and faithfulness as they pursue Christ with a long obedience in gospel dependence. We also give thanks for ministries and churches within our denomination that minister to sexual strugglers of all kinds with biblical truth and grace. Most importantly, we give thanks for the gospel that can save and transform the worst of sinners. Older brothers and younger brothers, tax collectors and Pharisees, insiders and outsiders. We rejoice in 10,000 spiritual blessings that are ours when we turn from sin by the power of the Spirit. Trust in the promises of God and rest upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. I want to close with one comment here. In the middle of that second paragraph, most importantly, we give thanks for the gospel that can save and transform the worst of sinners, older brothers and younger brothers. What's that a reference to? It's the parable of the prodigal son. The older brothers who stayed home the older brother who stayed home and was the good kid, yet failed to see his father's heart. And the younger brothers who run off and do all these visibly sinful and terrible things, yet comes home and is forgiven and is able to see the heart of his father. It's the younger one who was forgiven first and saw the heart of his father. It's the older one who was good, who missed his father's heart and didn't actually know his father. Yet there is forgiveness even for those even for the older brothers. And our tendency, if I'm allowed to say this, our tendency as Presbyterians is to be older brothers. And so it's good for us to remember that we too give thanks for the gospel that can transform the worst of sinners like us who think that we're okay behind our veils of religiosity and theology but have failed to see the heart of God. He's so patient and so good and so kind to welcome and love sinners like us. So let's be a community that uh, never forgets that and never treats anybody any differently for that reason. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that forgives the worst of sinners. We praise you that you have forgiven us, and if you can forgive us, you can forgive anyone who walks through these doors. We thank you that the salvation that we find in Christ is enough for every sin that is brought to the foot of the cross. We thank you for this fellowship that cares deeply about caring deeply. 
And we pray that we would do that well together. Would you show us where we need to repent? And would you show us where we need to grow in our faith? And would you show us how to love you, our God, and to love our neighbors? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.